Christianity the best religion? About other faiths. And today we're ending with this question. Is Christianity the best religion? Can we even realistically make a determination like that? What do we even mean by best? Do we mean the one we like best? Well, no. Is there some type of way to logically say that this religion is the most accurate about the transcendent? And when I say transcendent, I mean the spiritual aspects of life, the invisible things behind what we see that are just as real as the things that we see and feel and touch. Which religion best reflects the reality of our shared existence in life? Like, which religion helps us make sense of all this stuff that we go through and experience? Every religion requires faith, every one of them, belief that you act on even though something is unseen, that's what faith means. So how do you prove one religion is better than another if all religions depend on faith? We can't be like, well, ours doesn't require faith and all the others do. They all require faith. Well, you can't slam dunk prove your religion is real and other religions are fake or your religion is best and other religions are less. You can compare and contrast religions. You can weigh the beliefs and how they reflect on reality and our shared experiences in it. In other words, you can see if they work. And if they provide tools to make sense of the core human conditions and desires that we all have. Now, in our pluralistic society, that might feel a little weird, but we weigh the value of different things all the time. Mankind cannot live without meaning, satisfaction, identity, justice, and hope. So we need to be asking which religion gives us those things and gives us the best tools to find those things. Every belief system has a working, operating theory about how you get these things, how you get satisfaction and meaning and identity and justice and hope. If you're a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Muslim or a Christian, or you even say there is no God, the world is purely materialistic, even that's a belief system. And all those belief systems have a path to get you these things. You may not be actively thinking about it, but what you believe is always telling you this is what you have to do to find meaning, satisfaction, identity, justice, and hope. And I think we compare different religions, and we can tell which one has the best tools to give us these things. So, that's what we're talking about today. Which belief system best delivers on these things? In the NBC sitcom about characters who go to hell and think it's heaven called The Good Place, anybody? couple head nods yeah I enjoyed the good place it was really more about philosophy than it was about religion but there's a line in the pilot where Kristen Bell's character up here is talking to Ted Danson's character and she goes oh I'm dead so which religion got it right and he goes well none of them did they were all got about it about five percent right and the rest was wrong but he goes on and he says Doug Forsett a stoner kid who lived in Calgary in the 1970s he got super high on mushrooms and he launched into this long monologue and got it 92% right. And everybody laughs and chuckles like, yeah, religions are clueless. People who are getting high have a better sense about what the afterlife looks like than religions do. Um, jokes aside, I think it's reasonable to assume that some religions better reflect the transcendent reality behind our world than others. Like for instance, if I told you to guess a number, I'm thinking of a number, guess. Go ahead, shout it out. Three, seventeen, forty-five. 45's closest. You guys are farther away. So she's a little bit closer to the number, which was 72. 
Some of you were way off. Some of you were closer, right? There's some people who are close, and there's some people who are way off. I think it's the same thing when it comes to the transcendent reality behind our world. It makes sense to assume that some religions are getting closer to the truth than others. Some religions are offering better tools to find meaning, satisfaction, identity, justice, and hope than other religions are. That just, that's just logical. That just makes sense. Um, I have an art teacher friend here at the Art Center. She's a wonderful person. We're good friends. I heard, she says this to her class all the time. I heard her say it this week. She always tells a new class, pick any religion you want because they're all equally wrong. I don't know what that has to do with art, but that's how she kicks off all her art classes. If I made up a religion on the spot, it is not logical to assume that it would be as equally bad as religions that have existed for thousands of years and have had billions of followers. It's silly to assume that if I created a religion on the spot, it would be as bad as religions that for thousands of years people have followed and found meaning, satisfaction, identity, justice, and hope from. For instance, if I created a religion about the big game master in the sky and called it board game anity, and you worship by playing board games. This is my shrine to board game anity right here. It's my little altar where I make sacrifices to board game anity. I have a problem, I know, I'm trying. I'm trying not to buy board games. It would be silly to say that my religion that I just created, board game anity, is better or as bad as religions that have existed for thousands of years and brought meaning and purpose to billions of people. We can't invalidate the experiences of billions of people just because we personally have adopted a religion of secularism. Some religions are better than others because some have better tools to get us what we all want as humans. Some religions are more wrong than others. That's not being elitist, that's being logical. It may not be politically correct. To say some religions provide better tools to give a people abundant life than others, but it makes sense. It's, it's true, it's just reality. If you think about it, it makes sense. After 9-11, there was an article in the New York Times that said the problem was with the terrorists blowing up the buildings, driving planes into them, killing thousands of people. They said the problem was the terrorists thought they had absolute truth. And this person writing this editorial said, anyone who claims to have absolute truth is dangerous. Kathy Keller, a Christian, uh, she had this great response to it. And she said, you know what? No one is afraid of the Amish. Anybody been out to central Pennsylvania? It's like, what are they going to do, run you down with their cart and buggy? I think we have a picture of a cart and buggy. Um, like, they're not very dangerous people, right? They think they have absolute truth, but no one's scared of them. Because having absolute truth isn't the problem, she said. The problem is whether or not what you say is truth actually is true. Or in other words, the problem is not absolute truth, but what you claim your absolute truth is. Some religions do have a dangerous absolute truth. Others don't. If you believe human beings are precious, that's probably not dangerous. That's probably helpful and good. If you think cats can talk is your absolute truth, that probably makes you quirky, maybe a little strange, but it doesn't make you dangerous. Does Darcy talk? She does? Okay, quirky, but not dangerous. If you think other humans are vampires, you're probably a danger to yourself and others. If you're out there with stakes like stabbing people, I'd be like, this is not a good absolute truth. This is dangerous. See, what all I'm trying to make the point is that different religions should be able to be compared and contrasted, and that is not us being elitist or isolationist or like, uh, that's just, that's a logical thing to do. 
If you believe as your absolute truth that Muslim men that die waging jihad against the enemies of Islam will be rewarded by Allah in heaven as martyrs and receive 72 virgins to enjoy in blissful ecstasy like the hijackers on 9-11 did, that's dangerous. Not all Muslims believe that, but the hijackers did, and that's dangerous. If you believe as your absolute truth that a man came back from the dead and that we can sacrificially lay down our lives for other people because it's not the end of our story when we die because we will live again, that's an absolute truth. That is beautiful. That's not dangerous. It's world-changing. So what we believe matters because what we believe affects how we live. And despite what my teacher friend tells her class, right, all religions are not created equal. Board game anity is not as good as Christianity. Because all religions don't result in people finding meaning, satisfaction, justice, and hope. All religions attempt to present a moral path to the good life, the life of flourishing we all want, and some fail and some succeed, and I want to argue that some succeed more than others. And guess which one I'm going to say I think succeeds more than others? Christianity. You're like, yes, Alex, you're a Christian and a Christian pastor in a Christian church. I know, it wasn't surprising. I think Christianity, despite all its flaws and issues throughout history, and I've talked about some of those in this series, in the name of Christ, the church has done some terrible things. There are real issues and flaws throughout our history. I still think it's the best possible religion. I think Christianity, despite all my personal baggage with churches and Christians, is still the best path towards abundant life. So quickly, I want to break down what makes Jesus and Christianity unique among the world religions and talk about why it uniquely provides tools to help us find meaning, satisfaction, identity, justice, and hope. According to Christianity, the meaning of life is to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and ultimately to do what he did. Or in the words of Jesus, to love God and love our neighbor. By doing this, we rejoin God in the role he created us for, to be his representatives, to spread the order, beauty, and flourishing of heaven on the earth. That's what he, the mission he gave to Adam and Eve. They got the plot off track. Jesus brought the plot back. This is unique in the world of religion. We're not working to earn God's favor. We're not like, man, if I do enough, he'll finally smile at me instead of scowl. We are working with God to bring his favor through us into the world because he freely gives because of who he is, because of who Jesus is, because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Second, for the Christian, satisfaction in life is about becoming like God and collaborating with God to bring order, beauty, flourishing into the world. Satisfaction is not about my personal achievement, but about my personal involvement in this big project called human life. In the Christian worldview, relationships are the most valuable source of satisfaction in life. Third, in the Christian sense, we are made in the image of God, so every human life is unique, important, and sacred. That's the central identity of Christianity, that humans are not just um, a mass of biological cells put together who happen to have sentience, but they are created in the image of God. You matter because you have a role to play in God's grand design. There has never been and there never will be again someone just like you. You have a unique role to fill in God's story of, God, of humanity, of heaven and earth, of humanity and divinity. If the identity, if your identity is built upon your achievements or your efforts, when you fail, when you fall, when you falter, your identity will crumble. Um, many times, I find many of my peers are constantly having identity crises, 
And modern society says you can have whatever identity you want, and that sounds really nice, but that means many times that you have to find your identity, then you have to define your identity, then you have to defend your identity, and it's exhausting. It creates anxiety because you're constantly wondering, what if I'm wrong? Like, I've been wrong about a lot of things in my life. If you asked me in my 20s, I'd be like, I'm in love with this person. Well, later, they were a terrible person, and I was not in love with them, right? And then I'm glad I didn't marry them because their life is crazy. You know, I married Darby, and my life's a lot better. There's a lot of things that I think that I'm right about at certain points in my life that I end up being dead wrong about. It's nice when your identity is not built in you, but built in something bigger than you. Christianity says your ultimate identity is that you are made by God, made in God's image, and made to fully become like Christ as a son or daughter of God. Fourth, we talked about it last week, but Christianity says God is a God of justice who sees when the weak and powerless are oppressed and will act in this life or in the life to come to bring justice. Christianity admits that there is evil in the world. It doesn't shy away from this reality. Neither does it simply try to laugh it away, but insists God is not too weak. That's not why we have evil. It's not that God is complicit in evil and he's like, well, it's okay. A little bit of evil is good for them. It's that God is patient. He wants everyone to come to a point of repentance. Finally, Christianity provides hope. All religions have some kind of consolation prize for following their religion. It's usually, usually an ethereal, disembodied space where your spirit experiences bliss. But Christianity says you and I will have resurrected bodies living on earth again. Our hope is not a consolation prize. It will be more life and a lot more abundant life than we have ever lived before. Not a lesser version of this life, but a deeper version of this life without death or sin. Now, if we had endless time, we would compare that to all the world religions, and it's quite fascinating, and I think Christianity gives us the best tools. So you might be asking at this point, okay, if Christianity is the best religion, if it gives us the best tool, why are Christians such jerks? Um, that's a good question. So why don't Christians live like this? If it provides us with the best tools, if Christianity is the best religion, why do they at times feel like some of the worst people? Some of the worst people I've known have been Christians. Um, that's a good question, right? Doesn't that invalidate their religion? No. Um, I provides. That doesn't mean they're choosing not to access access the tools their religion provides. That doesn't mean their religion doesn't provide better tools than other religions. This week I had to put a new doorknob on here at the art center, um, and so I took the old one off, and the hole was too small, so I needed to make the hole big, bigger. So I took out a hammer and a chisel, and I just started like hitting on this door for a while, and I was like, boy, my drill's terrible. It's just, it's a terrible drill. Uh, no, I didn't say that. I was like, I have a drill. I should be using that rather than a chisel and a hammer. That's what a smart person would do. And so then I went down and I remembered, I have a nice DeWalt drill. And look, I even have the thing to drill out door handle holes. I don't know what that's called. You see how like, um, but anyways, so I went down and got this and guess what? It went right through the door when I used the tools that I had. Now, when I was using a chisel and a hammer, did I say, man, DeWalt makes a terrible drill. No, I wasn't using that tool. So we can't disregard Christianity just because people aren't using the tools. They say, I'm a Christian, but they're not using any of the tools that their religion provides. G.K. Chesterton said, it is not that Christianity has been tried and found insufficient, but rather that it has been found difficult and left 
untried. I am a Christian not because my parents were, not because most people in my culture are. I'm a Christian because I believe it best reflects the transcendent foundation behind this world, and it best makes sense of the highs and lows of my personal life in this world, and best reflects the character and nature of God who made this world and that I've got small glimpses of throughout my life. If another religion did this better, I would be that religion. I'm not like, well, I was born in America, I gotta be Christian. No, like, I would follow the religion that makes the most sense, that makes the most sense of the highs and lows of life and the transcendent reality behind life and the glimpses of God that I've had in life. If another religion did that better, I think Jesus would tell us to follow that one. I'm not looking to artificially support the religion of my people or my past. I realize I'm a Christian pastor, right? Uh, On some level, my job depends on their remaining Christians. Uh, That's not why I'm a Christian. I'm looking for truth. I'm looking for tools to make sense of the transcendent framework behind this world and make sense of the highs and lows of my life in this world. In 2023, I had some of the lowest points in my life ever. And somehow at my lowest point, when I was like, I don't even know if I want to live anymore in that moment, Jesus was still there and he still found me and I still found myself having hope. And I was like, this isn't coming from me. I don't have any hope. Something outside of me is giving me hope and keeping me moving and keeping me moving forward. I think Christianity has the best tools for life. I've had some highs, I've had some lows, and Jesus has seen me through them in ways that defy reason. I'm going to end our series with this admonishment from the Apostle Paul to churches he started in Corinth. Uh, Corinth was a huge city in Greece. At one point, we, uh, records tell us it had 90,000 people in it, around 400 years before Christ. Uh, the Romans ended up rebuilding it. We still have ruins of it today that you can go and see in Greece. And it had a mixed population of Romans, Greeks, and Jews. But the big focal point of this city was it had these beautiful, really recently made but grandiose temples to the Roman gods and the Roman imperial cult. Uh, cult. Let's see what Paul says writing to this church in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 14 through 24. Therefore, my friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I'm saying to you. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? There is one loaf, and we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do they not eat the sacrifices? Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? He's essentially like, do you want to fight with God? I have the right to do anything, you might say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, you might say, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good but the good of others. Quick background here. The Christians in Corinth were fighting. Yeah, read First and Second Corinthians. They were always fighting about something. But they were fighting here about meat sacrificed to the, the idols. 
And what you could do is you could go down to the market and you could buy meat, or you could buy meat that had been sacrificed in one of these Roman pagan temples, and it was cheaper because it was like already burned up, it was used for a secondary source, and you could get it on the cheap. And so some people thought they were getting a good deal, while other people were like, I'm a better Christian than you because I don't eat that cheap meat sacrificed to pagan gods. And so Paul's addressing the issue, and he actually writes a lot longer piece about this, and he's like, look, you know what? Um, he kind of makes the case for both sides, and he warns that some religions are demons masquerading as gods to confuse and destroy people. And he says, look, you can't worship demons and Jesus. They don't mix. You either worship Jesus or an idol. You can't do both. Um, and then he goes on to argue, like, if you realize meat is just meat and the gods aren't anything and it holds no value or superstition to you, fine, you can eat it. But if you don't, but don't eat it, he says, if it would confuse the pagans or young disciples about who it is that you really worship. Then he makes this powerful statement, and this is what I want to focus on here at the end. In Jesus, under grace, we have the right to do whatever we want, but that isn't the heart of Jesus that he puts in us when we believe. The heart of Jesus is to think about others more than myself and to do what is constructive and beneficial. I think too often as a Christian culture, we ask, is it sin? That's not a bad question. I just think there's a better question. I think the better question is, is it constructive and beneficial? Does it help people live with a deeper sense of love, with a deeper sense of meaning, satisfaction, identity, justice, and hope? In the first message in this series, we ask, is something in our life idolatry that we don't realize is our money, our relationship, our career idolatry? Perhaps a better question is this, is something in my life not beneficial or constructive? Is there something that doesn't help me live and love more like Jesus? Sometimes idols are demons masquerading as gods, but sometimes something good is actually an idol masquerading in our life because it has taken the central focus of our life off of Jesus. Sometimes something good has taken the place that should be reserved for Jesus. And this happens many times because the good thing promises to give us the good life if we give it our time, attention, and affection. And I have found that any religion, any idol, any good thing placed as the prominent, most important thing of my life doesn't bring abundance. Only Jesus in that top spot gives us abundant life. John 10.10, 10, Jesus said, I came so that you might have life, so you might have it more abundantly. In other words, what Jesus was saying was, I have come so that you might have meaning, satisfaction, identity, justice, and hope, everything that people are looking for in life, and no other God will give it like I do. Three things to think about as we close. What's in the top spot of your life right now, here, today? What do you think about? What do you dream about? What do you spend your time and money on? Where does Jesus fit into your priorities and your plans? Second question. Are you ready to commit to Jesus, to become an apprentice of his way of life? Maybe you've been coming for a while, maybe you're watching online, and you're like, I've been checking out Christianity for a while now, I've been figuring this thing out, I've been hearing about it, I've been asking questions for thousands of years. People ready to leave their old lives behind and become students of how Jesus lived and loved, have been baptized with water. Maybe you're ready for that. Maybe you're ready to make a public statement to say, hey, my old life I'm leaving behind, I want to be an apprentice of Jesus from here on out. Question number three. Is there something you need to flee from? I, I think Paul's language is really interesting here. In verse 14, he said, My dear friends, flee from idolatry. He didn't say avoid it. He's like, run away from it. Get away from it. 
flee from it? Is there something you need to flee from? Something that is promising you everything you want, but is really just taking your peace and making you selfish instead of loving? Paul told the Corinthians to run away from idols because they'll never give you what you want. Um, there's a very religious word. I try to avoid religious words because in our culture we know them, but they don't mean anything anymore because we've used them so often they've lost all meaning. There's a very religious word, and it's the word repent. But it actually has a really simple meaning. It means to change direction. It means to stop chasing things that leave you empty and run back towards Jesus. I like how Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German pastor who resisted the Nazis in World War II, uh, he, said, he described repenting as realizing that you're on a train and the train is heading to a destination that you don't want to go. And so instead of changing seats on the train, you get off the train and you get on a new train that's heading in the right direction. Where is your life headed? Is what you're pursuing really helping you become a person of peace and an agent of love? Is it really getting you to what you want, where you want to be? Is it really helping you become the person you want to be? Or do you need to change trains? Let's pray. Lord Jesus.